Now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to the book of Daniel. We finished a 10-month series on Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and uh, we began a shorter study on the stories and visions of Daniel. You'll find Daniel in your Bible uh, just after Ezekiel and just before Hosea. Daniel is the story of exiles. It's about people ripped from their homes, who live amidst their enemies, who are called to be faithful in a hostile world to their God. As citizens of heaven, Christians are not unlike uh, Daniel and his friends. We live here on earth as aliens and strangers in a foreign land because our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus is our elder brother. God is our father. We've been adopted into his family, and we are just passing through this world as we, as Paul says in Philippians, eagerly await a savior from heaven who will come back to us. And the world, as we live in it, wants to squeeze us into its mold, whether by the pressure of persecution, it wants us to go along, or by the pressure of seduction, it wants to entice us to go along, to abandon our God. And in this book, we see that God is the God of the nations, and God does not abandon his people. And so this book is designed to encourage God's people to remember him and walk with him amidst the pressure to forget him. How do we do that? Let me invite you to consider Daniel chapter 1. Hear now the word of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. The chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. 
And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. The end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there. Until the first year of King Cyrus. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we pray you'd show us your glory tonight. Open our eyes that we might behold you. That we might know you truly as you are. That we would exalt you, delight in you, trust you, look to you. We pray you'd be our teacher and our guide. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. I told you before I grew up near Cleveland. There was a time when the Cleveland Indians lost 100 games a season, multiple seasons in a row. And in a stadium that seated over 90,000, there were games I went to where there were four and 5,000 people in attendance. It was you and the popcorn guy a mile away. People had lost hope. They had lost confidence. They had lost interest. It is tough to root for a loser. And the issue in Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar would, would press on Daniel, his friends, his family, and his nation, and you and I is... Why would you follow God, the Lord of Israel? He's a loser. Look what we did to his people. But the issue that Daniel and the writer of this book would have us believe is found uh, repeated again and again. Verse 2, verse 9, verse 17 with these little words. And God gave. That's the key to understanding this chapter. And there are three lessons to be found in it. And I want you to consider three things tonight. Number one. In this story, we see the sovereignty of God, even in the suffering of his people. You find that in verses 1 and 2. It's in the third year of the reign of the king 
Jehoiakim of Judah. And what happens? Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And he took with him some of the nobility among the youths of the the leading families. And he took some of the vessels of the household of God and he brought them back. It was a disaster for Judah. Nebuchadnezzar was the most uh, famous king, I think, of the Babylonian Empire. You might agree with me. He had expansionist plans to really conquer all the nations around him. He had, he had just fought the Battle of Carchemish against the allied forces of Assyria and Egypt, and he had destroyed them, and he had, uh, he had pushed them off into the dustbin of history. And on his way back to Babylon, he passes through Jerusalem, 605 B.C., and he makes the first of three attacks against Israel and Jerusalem. He'll come back again in 597 B.C. and then again in 587 B.C. in order to fully decimate Judah. But for now, in this first assault, he carts off some of the teenagers of the royal family along with the vessels, some of them, of the house of God. Now, that's the event. The question is, why was he successful? And the answer is in verse 2. Look at it. Verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of his God. So first you get the history, and then you get the theology. First you hear what Nebuchadnezzar did, but then you hear that this was the Lord's doing. God had... Previously, on numerous occasions, both with Moses in the Old Testament law and with the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, he had told his people if they turned their backs on him, he would carry them off into exile. And that is precisely what he did. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of of the Bible is sovereign. And nothing happens here that he is not in control of. He governs the affairs of his people and the military victory of the nations. He even gives his own people here into the hand of his enemies. And he gives some of the valuable bowls, the gold stuff that was valuable, into the the hand of this pagan king and it's taken and it's put in the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God in his temple. Now the question uh, is, Um, Do you know what Nebuchadnezzar's actions mean here? Why did he put little of this in the house of his God? Well, people in that day thought, generally, in this region of the world, that a God was, was a regional God. There might be a big dog on the block, but if you went to a new region, a new country, a new place, there were gods over those regions. And so there were lots of deities... And the fortunes of the deities were bound up and intertwined with the fortunes of the people and vice versa. It was kind of like, similarly, but very different, when in the Summer Olympics, you know, some runner from Uganda wins the gold medal and we say, Uganda won. Or when Canada's runner loses, we say, Canada lost. So here... Nebuchadnezzar is saying to the, to the Jews, I've got your God's best future leaders. And I've got your God's temple artifacts. What kind of God can't hold on to his best people and his best stuff? 
Whose God is bigger, Nebuchadnezzar is saying. Who's better, tougher, stronger, more powerful? Yeah, that's right. Your God is a loser, is what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. And he's the God of losers, you people. And it was a strategy meant to demoralize the Israelites. To make them think that God didn't care about them. That God couldn't then defend them and and he wasn't a God you could rely on. So why bother worshiping him? Why bother resisting his enemies when I come back, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, y'all relax a little bit. He's not worth it. And so it was a spiritual battle. And so that battle continues. In our own day, we see, often as we hear the news and read it, around the world, select Christians singled out for ridicule and court fines, for imprisonment and martyrdom. And we're all tempted to distrust Jesus just a little bit. Maybe Jesus isn't as strong as I thought we're tempted to say to ourselves. And maybe it isn't worth it to follow him. But Yahweh, the Lord, tells you what wasn't happening. He wasn't losing. Verse 2, he gave. He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Just as even one day he gives his own beloved son into the hand of wicked men who put him to death. So when things go bad and when his people are hurting and when his name is belittled, he's still on his throne governing the universe. And the experience of his people may be defeat, ruin, destruction, but he remains the undefeated God. This isn't proof he doesn't exist. This is proof he does exist. He did what he promised ahead of time he would do. And they went into exile. Now, think, of course, how painful that would have been for these families among the nobility. I mean, their pride and their joy, the healthiest, brightest teenagers, the the best looking ones, ripped from their families and carted off to serve in the civil government in Babylon. What, what anguish and weeping and loss they suffered. Yet, their comfort is not that God is absent, but that God is in charge, ruling and governing all his creatures and all their actions, even when it looks like his kingdom is overrun. This is the way it was in the early church. Says Michael Green, when the Christians would date the death of their martyrs, they would write the the date of the death, the martyr's name, and next to it they would write, I'm no Latin scholar or pronunciator, is that a word? Regnate Jesu Christo. They would write, in the reign of Jesus Christ, so-and-so martyred, (laughs) not by Caesar in Rome, But under the reign of Jesus Christ, that was their hope. So for us, and isn't this the hope that we saw again and again in the book of Ephesians when we studied it? That as Ephesians 1 verse 11 puts it, God works all things after the counsel of his own will. 
And that included that his own son should come and die and be buried. But then what? Raised and seated at the right hand of the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. And he gave him as head over all things for the church. Ephesians 1, 20 and following. And we can take comfort in that, my friends. Come what may. The authors of the old Heidelberg, Heidelberg Catechism uh, asked the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer was this, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid with, for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because that is the place of comfort and confidence in the midst of life's greatest tragedies for the people of God. Says Sinclair Ferguson, we see our trials as isolated nightmares. God, however, views them from a different perspective. They are important and connected punctuation marks in the biography of grace he is writing in our lives. They are all part of the tapestry he is weaving in history. He is sovereign in his people's tragedy. So the exile here, friend, is no accident. It is the work of the will of God who is sovereign in the suffering of his people. That's verses 1 and 2. But second thing you see in verses 3 through 20, the bulk of the passage, we only have time to highlight some big things. You see the sovereignty of God in subverting his enemies. In verses 3 through 20, we see how it is that Daniel and his friends not only came to be in the court of the Babylonian king, but how they fared when they were there. In verses 3 through 7, you get the cunning strategy of Nebuchadnezzar. He, uh, and it is, uh, it is uh, wickedly brilliant. <laughs> he has his chief staff pick, out the, staff pick out the cream of the crop in Judah, and he enlists them in a re-education program to Babylonianize them. He basically wants to do a re, uh, re-indoctrination, a brainwashing program on them. Now, you've got to remember that this is just the first wave of the exiles. When these are ready, they'll serve in his civil government. They'll walk in the corridors of power, and they will be prepared to manage the affairs of their own, uh, their own, um, their own uh, families and neighbors who are later exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. Some 10 and 20 years later. And that way, the future captives will be governed by their own people who have become Babylonian. So these young teenagers who were healthy and good-looking and smart and of noble birth, 
are to be instructed in the literature and the language of Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldeans. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with knowing what others think and how they communicate it in their own language. Nothing at all. But the idea here was that they would not only learn these things, but be changed by their learning, right? For three years, they are there to be made to think like a Babylonian. And the danger was not that they would be in Babylon, but that Babylon would come to be in them. And that isn't the first time and it isn't the last time that strategy has been used. The world is always trying to squeeze Christians into its mold. That is why we, the people of God, are exhorted by Paul in Romans chapter 12 in view of God's mercy. God's mercy to you. I urge you not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let God's truth, Paul says, shape your thinking and shape your living because you want to live out of gratitude for God's mercy. Well, in verse 7, we see that part of the process here, not only were they to learn the language and speak it and learn the literature and imbibe its view of the world, but that part of the process was that they were given new names, new identities. They were to forget that they were the servants of Yahweh of Israel They were to become the servants of the gods of the Babylonians. So their Jewish names uh, identified them with God or Yahweh. They contain the word El, which is translated God. They contain the word Yah, which is short for Yahweh or or Jehovah, if you have the King James. But now now their new names identify them with the gods of the Babylonians. So Daniel, whose name means El, God is my judge, he becomes Belteshazzar, which is probably, may Bel protect the king. Hananiah, there's the Yah, Yahweh is gracious, he becomes Shadrach. Uh, Something to do with the name of the pagan god Marduk. There's a little bit of it in there. Uh, And by the way, experts, (laughs) beyond my uh, faint knowledge of these things, have pointed these things out. Mishael, who, who is like God, is the name. He becomes Meshach, identified, we think, with the deity Venus, uh, called elsewhere Venus, and Azariah, uh, Ayah, Yahweh is my helper, becomes Abednego, or servant of Nebo. So, so what, what they were saying to these young men is, forget who you are, And forget your allegiance to the Lord, to the God, to Yahweh of of Israel. You belong to Bel. You belong to Marduk. You you belong to Nebo. Think of yourselves as belonging to them. And soon you'll forget all that other junk. He's a loser anyway. And it's so important for us. In a world that wants to squeeze us into its mold and make us after its own likeness. And turn our backs on Jesus We've got to remember who we are in Christ. That we are the beloved children of God adopted into his family. That Jesus is not ashamed to be called our elder brother. And we are citizens of heaven. But, but while Nebuchadnezzar could change these young men's names, he could not change their hearts. And you see Daniel's counter strategy at verse 8. 
to Nebuchadnezzar's wicked, wicked and cunning strategy. Notice his counter strategy at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, now why does Daniel ask not to eat the king's food and wine? Why does he think it will defile him? Well, you get a variety of answers here. Some think that Daniel did it because he, he thought the food wouldn't be kosher. It wouldn't follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament. He'd be made to eat some kind of meats he shouldn't eat. And that may be the case. However, there's no law against wine. Wine is kosher. Wine isn't wrong for him to eat. It, it may be, however, he thought, well, if I get the meat from the table, they're going to give me the wine too, and then I'm kind of stuck having to eat both. And Dan, Daniel simply didn't want to eat that meat because he, he wanted to obey God. That could be it. Others say, well, Daniel, Daniel probably figured that the food had been offered in sacrifice to the Babylonian deities. And, and he didn't want to eat food sacrificed to idols and false gods and so become involved in identifying with those gods. That, that may be it too. But then it's hard to understand how the, the bread and the fruit and the, and the produce, and that's what the word vegetables there, it actually encompasses all those things, uh, how, it, how uh, he, you know, those things necessarily wouldn't have been also offered to pagan deities and that, how that would have spared him uh, from that. Others say, no, Daniel didn't want to enjoy the luxury of the king's table. He, he, he didn't want to enjoy all the privileges and extravagance of the king's court, uh, and, and so thereby get seduced by the pleasures of it, feeling like, you know, I really belong here, and, and who, who couldn't like this life? And that may be right. I mean, that has more often than not been the most effective strategy in your heart and mind to pull us from God. I mean, governments can put people in prison camps. The terrorists can threaten to chop off the heads of Christians. But the majority of people are much more easily manipulated when they are well-fed and provided for. Satan may indeed violently persecute some believers today as he does in the Middle East and North Korea. But he, is he not far more effective around the world and here in our own nation by simply seducing us with the pleasures of this world and its opportunities and so deceiving us into forgetting our God? I'd say he is, friends, at least in my own heart. And so it may be that Daniel's refusal to eat from the food and the wine of the king's table was his own small way of saying, I'll learn your literature, I'll speak your language, I'll respond to the name you have given me, but I won't become you. And I won't indulge myself and get pulled into leaving my true allegiance to Yahweh. So for whatever reason, he asks that he might abstain. He doesn't do so arrogantly and obnoxiously. He doesn't walk up to his captors and very boldly antagonize them. But with great humility, he goes up to the chief steward and he puts in his respectful request that he might be allowed to eat something else. And the man says to him, what? No. Verse 9 
he had favor and compassion in the eyes of the chief steward. And immediately it says he said no to him. What's that about? Well, this guy doesn't want his, to get his own head chopped off. If it turns out that as Daniel and his friends quit eating the king's food, they start to go baggy in the pants and gaunt in the face and, and look bad. And then it's on the chief steward for not doing his job. And so Daniel, hearing no from him, he doesn't give up. But he quietly proposes the idea to the steward who brings him the actual food. So it doesn't take no for an answer, but he slips down a notch on the pecking order and he asks the waiter, as it were. And he proposes a short 10-day test. And the steward here agrees. And after 10 days, they look better and they look fatter. And that was a good thing. Fit. But why? Why was he permitted by the steward to undermine the king's orders that he should eat from the king's feast? Why? Because, verse 9, God gave him favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And it may be that chief said, you know, I can't give you permission because if this doesn't work, my life is on the line. It may be, he said, why don't you go talk to the waiter and see if you can work out a deal with it. He may have been nodding in that direction and permitting it. It may be that the waiter was thinking to himself, well, I could slip a little of the king's food off into my plate. I mean, the waiter here is probably not eating from the king's table. But for whatever reason, God gave him favor. And God, it says, made him healthy. Now, I want you to think how subversive that is. Nebuchadnezzar thinks Yahweh is impotent. And here is Yahweh strengthening the health of his servants amidst his enemies. And then at verses 17 through 20, it says that God also gave Daniel and his friends learning, skill, and all literature, and wisdom, and visions, and dreams. That doesn't mean they didn't work hard and apply themselves and study and read their books and write their papers. It doesn't mean uh, that they just, you know, stayed up at the last minute all night long and took the exam and passed. They worked here, but God helped them. So much so that when he and his friends stand before the king, they're smarter and more knowledgeable than all the others who trained with them. But more than that, they're maybe hyperbole here. They're 10 times smarter than all the magicians and all the wise men of all who have ever taken the study program of the king. No one did better than them. And it was God who gave them the ability. And now it is God's own servants who will counsel the king. Again, how subversive. How wonderfully, sovereignly subversive. He undermines the very nation that thinks it's better than he and his people. Nebuchadnezzar takes the utensils of Yahweh and puts them in his temple. And God takes his own servants and he puts them in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. The chess match is over and it is no contest. But think of this, friends, in the midst of how subversive this is. What a mercy. What a mercy this is to the Babylonians. Here in the courts of a pagan king, there will be witnesses to the greatness of God and to the truth of his word. Here will be men willing to suffer for the Lord, and they will. And yet to bring the good news of the Lord to their host. 
And they do, as we shall see, they suffer, and yet with courage they also speak, and what a mercy they do. This exile is God's strategy to bring the gospel to the greatest nation of earth in its day. We hear, friends, in the time of Jesus' birth that wise men came from the east bearing gifts. Were they men who learned from the traditions left by Daniel and his friends about the true God? I don't know for sure, but it's possible, and I can't wait to find out in heaven one day. Certainly we know that Nebuchadnezzar heard the truth, and he, as it says in chapter 4, blessed Almighty God, the Most High God, and praised Him and honored Him who lives forever. So as Ralph Davis, my old seminary professor, said, sometimes God may allow hardship to reach us because He wants His mercy to reach beyond us to others. So there's, there's something wonderfully merciful in the sovereign subverting of His enemies God does here. But the last thing is this. We finally see in verse 21, it's almost just a little tale at the end of the story. We see the sovereignty of God in sustaining his witnesses. And Daniel, it says, was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This last verse sort of pushes the fast forward button on the story. It actually takes us to the end of the story of Daniel some 70 years later. When in 539, Cyrus is now king. That means Daniel is going to be about 85 years old or so. Now, who is Cyrus? He's the king of the Persian Empire that's going to defeat the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar, by the end of that verse, has died. Babylon has fallen. Cyrus and the Persians are running the show. And where is Daniel? He's standing there. Mighty Babylon is no more, but God's servant is still witnessing. On December 10th, 1958, boxing great Archie Moore defended his light heavyweight title against a Canadian, Yvonne Durrell. Moore was 43 years old, which is, which is very old for a boxer, fighting a much younger and spry Durrell who was 30 at the time. In the first round, Durrell knocked out Archie Moore three times. In the fifth round, he knocked him out again. But as the fight went on, Moore gathered more and more strength, no pun intended, while Durrell seemed to fade. And in the 11th round, Moore scored his 127th record knockout. He simply outlasted his younger opponent. And that is how God's people are. Kings come and go, empires rise and fall, but God's witnesses outlast them all. That's the promise. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So God is sovereign and he sustains his witnesses. And don't think then that this message of this book is dare to be a Daniel and that that's it. Dare to be a Daniel is not the only message of this book. It is a call. To be in awe of the Savior and God of Daniel and to trust in him. And as we prepare to come to this table, you remember Jesus. And you remember that Daniel points to Jesus. Like Moses before him, Daniel was found to be a beautiful child, educated in all the knowledge of a pagan empire, exalted to the highest place in the courts of the king, 
Yet he would rather identify with Christ and his people than to share in the fleeting pleasures of sin. Yet do not hear Daniel nor Moses saying, I can save you by my faithfulness. For they were not perfectly faithful and they are not your savior. They were but servants in God's house. But there is another one. Better than Moses, better than Daniel, a son over all God's house who was tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. And though he died a martyr, a witness for God, yet he lives. And his cross is the instrument by which the weakness of God redeems the weak and the faithfulness of God redeems the unfaithful. Come to this meal, friends, trusting in him. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We marvel. We we stand in awe. We exalt you. We don't know half of it. But we praise you and we know that we need you. Come and come to the aid of your people and strengthen us to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.